0: researchers don't go into this with the goal of confirming their biases. You go into this field to find out, to mess around.
1: Fuck yeah, around and find out.
0: Thank you for, for finishing that one for me. <laughs> yeah, you, you go into this field because you want to actually learn stuff. You want to know what the truth is. That's point of what well, we it's do not
1: this. the scientific process otherwise right if you're just looking to confirm your own biases it's like missing the entire point
0: yeah absolutely absolutely and and let me tell you the research my colleagues and I have done we have a 50 50 batting average in, in our hypotheses of what the outcome is going to be and so it, we're, we're totally open to being wrong we've been wrong half the time And that's fine because that is how you uncover layers of truth of any given topic.
1: Hey there, welcome to Tater Talks. Two bitches talk fitness. I'm Brooke. And hello, I'm Iris. On this show, we challenge the common understanding of what it means and what it takes to be fit and healthy. We explore all things fitness, nutrition, mindset, and mental health without the fluff and BS. So grab a coffee, get ready to laugh, cry, even learn a thing or two. Let's get into it. Welcome back, everybody. Today, we are going part two, electric boogaloo with nutrition researcher, social media educator, Alan Aragon, friend of ours and just an absolute wealth of knowledge in the space about nutrition. Welcome back, Alan. How's it going?
0: It's going great. I'm happy to be back. Thank you so much for having me.
1: I'm excited to continue our conversation, which was very well received, I'm happy to say. I, I didn't expect that it wouldn't be, but I got a lot of good messages about that. So I'm I'm excited to keep going. Last time we wanted to talk about seed oils yeah, and didn't because, because we just yeah. started rolling. I love it. Let's start off with that. And I guess I want to ask the same question that I did about the oatmeal in the last episode is where does that fear come from? And is there any validity to it?
0: Okay, so the seed oil thing is a unique and interesting phenomenon in the health and fitness industry. And it's been kind of brewing up seriously for starting over a decade ago. People are already harping about seed oils and it mainly started as a fear of omega-6 fatty acids. So back in the late 80s and late 80s to into the 90s, a Greek researcher, Symopoulos, I believe he really kind of led the the charge as far as publishing narrative reviews about this idea that the human diet started off with a relatively even proportion of omega six fatty acids and omega three fatty acids omega 6 fatty acids and and linoleic acid specifically was viewed as kind of the bad guy the inflammatory uh, polyunsaturated fatty acid and then omega uh, omega 3 fatty acids and the ones that that we know EPA and DHA those were viewed as the healthy polyunsaturated fatty acids so those were viewed as the anti-inflammatory high hypolipidemic blood pressure lowering and cardiovascularly healthy polyunsaturated fatty acids. So the omega-6s were, well, now we know incorrectly, viewed as the inflammatory stuff. And then omega-3s were viewed as sort of the the young versus the yin. And these are the good guys. And you needed a balance of of these things. One-to-one. And then it was proposed that compared to our ancestral times our omega 6 intake has just greatly exceeded what it used to be in terms of proportion like people throw out it should be 1 to 1 but now it's 15 to 25 to 1 or some stuff like that just pretty arbitrary guesses and so therefore the omega 6 thing was really based on was this whole idea that we're consuming too much omega 6 and not enough omega 3 and therefore that is what's causing the modern diseases of humanity. So it was a hypothesis. It was an idea. But a lot of people jumped on that idea. And then that kind of morphed into this idea that, okay, where are we getting all this omega-6 intake? Ah, seed oils. Ah, salad salad oils, vegetable oils. And then that whole thing got compounded by Um, The use of margarines, the use of partially hydrogenated vegetable oils that spun off a bunch of trans fatty acid intake, and this kind of made seed oils even more of the bad guy because they were associated with these partially hydrogenated vegetable oils that genuinely were a health threat until they got banned from commercial production in, I think it was 2015 maybe, that you're, you're no longer allowed to use partially hydrogenated vegetable oils. And so that is, in a nutshell, the history of why seed oils are looked at as this bad thing. And like anything else, when any claims are made and, and anytime the alarm whistle is blown on anything, whether it's something ridiculous like oh, oats are bad or <laughs> whey protein is bad. or something. The
1: oxalates and spinach. Spinach <laughs> is bad. The
0: oxalates are bad phytates and these, these (laughs) vegetable foods. They're trying to kill us.
1: Soy. I had a conversation (laughs) about soy with somebody yesterday. Right.
0: Soy is going to feminize you and all this stuff. Mm -hmm. So anytime bold claims are made, it's like this, like I get a lot of messages from people saying, Hey, Alan, I'm trying to convince my friend or my colleague that this, this thing that they think this thing that they believe I'm trying to convince them that it's not true. So Do you know of any evidence showing that claim x is not true and i always have to direct people to the idea of okay who needs to provide the evidence here it's the person who's making this wild claim so the concept of the burden of proof really comes into play here we can't shift the burden of proof on the person who's who's absorbing this this wild claim. And the burden of proof rests on the shoulders of the person making the wild claim. So I, I typically tell people, just, just ask for the evidence. And when you ask for evidence, you wanna ask for human research. You wanna ask for peer reviewed human research. And then you can kind of take it from there and see what they provide. Because a lot of times, people just can't, they'll just grab a YouTube video or they'll grab a a, a blog entry. And then (laughs) it sort of fails from there because they can't meet your fundamental baseline demand of, all right, let's take a look at the human research on the subject. So applying that to the subject of seed oils, we go back to to the very beginning with the claim that seed oils are bad. So that claim, seed oils are bad, then you can say, all right, cool, what's what's the evidence? But even in the case of seed oils, you can take things a step more specific because saying seed oils are bad is the equivalent of saying animal foods are bad, mm-hmm. or how about this, or meat is bad, or dairy is bad. So it, it's the equivalent claim in terms of its vagueness, in terms of its lack of specificity which freaking seed oil are you talking about <laughs> there's two dozen different seed oils circulating in commercial use which seed oil are you talking about so that's number one so when you ask the question okay seed oils are bad what seed oil almost always canola oil will be like number one like that that's the knee-jerk seed oil that people will say "Oh, canola oil now yeah
1: breaking my Southern mother-in-law's heart. <laughs>
0: <laughs> on on a little bit of a side note, I always have to kind of laugh to myself while I'm arguing with somebody about seed oils because I don't use any damn seed oils. I use extra virgin olive oil for all my cooking, mm-hmm. but I'm not going to deny the body of evidence on, on seed oils. And so, okay. Mm-hmm. So they always say that's yeah, canola oil. Yeah, that's the bad one or they'll say it's canola oil. Yeah. It's inflammatory. It's, it's bad for your health. It'll cause like heart disease and and who knows, diabetes, metabolic syndrome, all this stuff. And then you simply say, okay, great. That sounds interesting. Can you please cite some human research in support of that? And if you really want to be a pain in the ass, you say, can you cite some peer reviewed human research on that? Because when people say, Hear the word research, they think that just doing a quick Google search and linking you to
1: right. a freaking
0: article on 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 MSN is going to do the trick. So you say peer reviewed human research. Let's have a look. You don't even you don't even. You, I try to be non adversarial in these discussions. I, I try to say let's have a look. Let's take a look at it instead of saying, oh, I bet you don't have." Let's see what piece of crap you got. I just let's have a look. Let's let's all look at this together. Mm-hmm.
1: Data collection. Oh, they can
0: never do it. <laughs>
1: Right. Yeah.
0: So it's, it's a canola oil is the perfect example of the folly of saying seed oils are bad because all of the dang research on canola oil shows positive results. It shows favorable results. And not only that, there's a, a meta analysis comparing canola oil with olive oil, extra virgin olive oil on effects on blood lipids. And lo and behold, canola oil outperforms olive oil on improving blood lipid profile it's it's kind of a funny thing and people just automatically get frustrated they get mad they feel like their ego just got crushed and they feel this cognitive dissonance cuz they've been believing this whole time that seed oils are bad seed oils are bad i was just given the opportunity to educate this guy about seed oil. So I brought up the chief evil seed oil, canola oil, and then lo and behold, it's one of the healthiest possible oils out there per the research. And then what happens from that point is that people pivot to saying, ah, well, screw research you can't trust science mm-hmm. well look what we did we trusted the science safe and effective with covid look at look what look at that and then so they're kind of crossing the streams here and they're pivoting to oh yeah well screw research and when when you say screw research then your alternative is hearsay your alternative is literally gossip and opinion and so of these, let's say they're both evil. Let's say big science is evil, but then what has more control? What is a higher quality source of information? Big science or big gossip and opinion? <laughs> One of these guys is actually going to steer you the right way more often than big gossip and big opinion. And and I, I had this, this conversation on a podcast recently with Max Lugaver. I have been involved with industry-funded research, but it's the food industry, it's the supplement industry, it's the protein powder industry. I've been involved with research that was funded by industry. I have not been involved with drug industry research. So maybe different industries have different levels of potential shenanigans and potential for getting paid A nice check if you play the shenanigans, right? But I can tell you from personal experience, food industry research, getting it funded is a matter of securing funding and then having an a priori agreement that it's hands off. We're going to do this research. You funded it. Thank you very much. We're going to see what the results are. And then you take anywhere from six months to two years to get a study published. You put in hundreds and hundreds of hours. You don't get paid you just do the science. <laughs> when when people say, "Oh, well, you must be paid by by big seed oil." I think that's the most ridiculous thing because the seed oil industry brings in only a fraction of the of the revenues compared to the meat industry, compared to the certainly the meat, fish, poultry and egg industry combined. And so if you're going to say Hey, you must be paid by the seed oil industry. Then I could just easily say, "Oh well, yeah." Everybody who has a positive opinion about, let's say, butter fat, butter, or beef tallow, or lard, is being paid by much bigger and much more influential industries. So I know, yeah, I I I kind of went off on a bunch of tangents there.
1: No, I love it because people often don't understand how research actually happens. And so it's very easy to say, oh, well, who funded it? They just have an agenda without understanding, like, it's freaking expensive to do any kind of study, especially if you're locking people in a ward, taking them out of their jobs, sometimes making them stay in bed for an extended period of time. Sounds great until you get 10 hours in and you're like, end me, please, right? People don't understand how research happens, like somebody has to fund it. And you have these agreements, like you mentioned, great, thank you. Now go away and let us do what we do.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. And and researchers are not willing to put their entire livelihoods at stake by having some sort of trail that leads from funding to their, their pockets. And it just, it's so, it's rare and nearly impossible that that happens. I mean, professors are already getting their their salary they're they're making their living and it's like why would anybody jeopardize that and researchers don't go into this with the goal of confirming their biases if they did that then there would be ways to ways to do that i'm sure but it's like you don't go into this field to do that you go into this field to find out to mess around.
1: Fuck around, around and find out.
0: Thank you for, for finishing that one for me. <laughs> yeah, you, you go into this field because you want to actually learn stuff. You want to know what the truth is. That's the whole point of what well, we do Well, it's not this. the
1: scientific process otherwise, right? If you're just looking to confirm your own biases, it's like missing the entire point.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and let me tell you, with the research my colleagues and I have done, we have a 50-50 batting average in, in our hypotheses of what the outcome is going to be. And so, it, it, we're, we're totally open to being wrong. We've been wrong half the time. And that's fine because that is how you uncover layers of truth of any given topic. So, yeah, it, it, it's truly interesting. So, kind of getting back to the, what is the evidence part of the seed oil thing? We looked at canola oil. Okay, that's a total miss on the anti-seed oil camp. And let me ask you this, who who here, who do you know personally who at home, they just deep fry their foods and soybean and corn oil over and over and over and over again? Who actually does that? Nobody actually does that. And if you eat at a greasy spoon diner, every day or every other day or whatever it is at a high frequency. And you order foods that are just used in oil that's just reused over and over again. And for deep frying, your problems are actually bigger than what the the seed oils are responsible for. And so, yeah, it, it's very hard to consume an amount of, of seed oil. That would cause adverse effects compared to the other factors in your diet and your lifestyle. So the whole thing of, about zeroing in on seed oils per se is incorrect because you need some very specific circumstances that involve repeated high heat, deep frying type of use to generate these so-called oxidation products that would adversely affect cardiometabolic health. And not only that, but There's a bunch of research showing that circulating levels of the chief villain, the omega-6 fatty acid, linoleic acid, the higher your circulating levels of this particular polyunsaturated fatty acid, then the lower your risks for cardiovascular disease and death. And not only circulating levels of linoleic acid, but tissue levels of linoleic acid were inversely associated with cardiovascular events and mortality. And this has been a consistent finding. So if linoleic acid, the main fatty acid people are concerned with, with seed was the bad guy, we wouldn't be seeing this consistent inverse relationship between circulating and tissue levels of it and disease and death. And we also have to ask the question, all right, so... We get rid of vegetable oils, all right? Pufa's bad, whatever. Seed oil's bad. What are we going to replace it with? Butter? Lard? Beef tallow? Okay, well, let's take a look at that research. All of it (laughs) shows worse outcomes when you replace these saturated fat-rich sources when when you substitute them into the diet and kick out the seed oils. So pick your poison. Do you Mm -hmm. you want poison number one or poison number two? So yeah, the saturated fat rich fats consistently show unfavorable cardiovascular risk results in, in a range of study types from the biomarker studies, the intermediate endpoint studies to the hard outcome or hard endpoint studies being disease and death. So that full range of the tightly controlled stuff here and then the observational stuff over here that tracks people for long enough and less controlled here. But you are able to track things like disease and you can do it prospectively as well. All of it points to the reality that saturated fats are actually a bigger threat than seed oils. So. I don't want to paint the picture that we have to go head first into the vegetable oils and and seed oils and completely avoid saturated fat. But I do want to paint the picture that, look, you're ignoring the evidence completely if you're painting one as the good guy and one as the bad guy. And I think we have to more, instead of being super reductionistic, and, and saying, okay, linoleic acid is bad, omega-6 um, fats are bad, or even saying saturated fatty acids are bad, we have to look more at the, the the food matrix, like the total food itself, the food selection, and what is the evidence with certain foods and their relationship to health outcomes? And also, what does the diet as a whole look like? And so when you pan back and you see the big picture you can see that a diet can be a healthy diet with saturated fat sources in it. A diet can be healthy and conducive to long-term health and favorable cardiometabolic outcomes with seed oils in it. (laughs) And so the evidence is what it is. That's that's the big problem with the seed oil thing. Like anti-seed oil folks, they focus on biochemical processes in a vacuum. And sometimes they get stuff totally wrong. They'll say, c oils are inflammatory. Okay, well, let's take a look at linoleic acid and inflammation. Oh, it looks pretty damn neutral across the board. Oops, okay, well, that's wrong. Or or they'll they'll say that these oxidation products, so these lipid peroxides, these oxlams, that, that happens when you have these polyunsaturated fatty acids. They're, they're susceptible to oxidation, oxidation, oxidation. Okay, cool. You're looking at a biochemical process in a vacuum. Let's look at what happens with human health outcomes when you feed them the stuff. Oh, totally different, totally opposite. The threat is no longer there. It's analogous to looking at insulin, the way that carbohydrate affects insulin output compared to the other macronutrients. So carbohydrate will reliably be more insulinogenic than protein and fat. Okay. And so then the hypothesis is born that, ooh, carbohydrates are bad because they elicit an, a stronger insulin response than protein and fat. Therefore, we need to cut carbohydrates out because guess what? Insulin is the fat storage hormone. And so the more insulin you're putting out, the more fat you're storing. And therefore, we have to remove carbohydrate from the diet. So lo and behold, we tested that hypothesis out over dozens of well-controlled studies, and the hypothesis is just wrong. You guys know that when you equate total calories and you equate protein between the diets of, of two separate groups, the proportion of carbohydrate and fat does not at all impact fat loss over time. That's because insulin, apparently, it's more of a bystander than a driver of actual changes in fat mass. So that is a similar principle that applies to the whole seed oils thing. You can't look at biochemical processes in a vacuum and ignore human health outcome data. And that's what the anti-seed oil folks do. And, and let me throw this a little bit in here. The more savvy seed oil folks will point to the Sydney Diet Heart Study and the Minnesota coronary experiment. They go, aha, look at that. We have the evidence. I have to say, if you could do a, a presentation on the most flawed and crucially confounded studies in clinical trial history, those two studies would definitely make it on there. Mm. Um, They're initiated in, in the mid-1960s. Number one, they, you're talking about 50-year-old research and you're ignoring the, <laughs> the subsequent research. And The Sydney diet heart study, they didn't distinguish between hydrogenated vegetable sources, vegetable oil sources, and non-hydrogenated. And that makes all the damn difference in the world in terms of the generation of trans fatty acids and the adverse potential thereof. Mostly smokers, heavy drinkers in in those groups. And so really crucially confounded by those variables. The Minnesota coronary experiment was done on psychiatric patients, with a non-continuous patient stay, so there were long periods of time where they were just not not surveilled in any way, shape, or form. And then there's other studies that that counter that work that show greater atherosclerotic deaths with the higher saturated fat condition versus the high polyunsaturated fat, the the seed oil condition. But that being the LA Veteran study, which was not the best controlled study as well, but far better controlled than the Sydney diet heart study or the Minnesota coronary experiment. But that's kind of getting into the weeds. And that's literally like 50-year-old research. When we look at the current state of affairs with the seed oil question, then the majority of human outcome research is in favor of seed oils, like period. Even the, even the bad guys like corn oil and soybean oil, it's, you can't really nail them for a consistent negative effect compared to things like butter and lard and beef fat. I think that people get wrapped up in this idea that, oh, we need to avoid this and seek out that. You can have both in the diet as long as the overall diet is healthy and you, and as long as you're getting enough omega-3 in the diet. So it's not as much a matter of avoiding omega-6 as it is a matter of getting in enough omega-3. And then of course, food source always matters. So you get one person deep frying everything he eats in soybean oil and getting his omega-6s there versus the other person who's getting his omega-6s from nuts. There's a big difference there because you're looking at a different vehicle of delivery of of these compounds into the body.
1: It all just goes back to overall context and dosage, right? Kind of like we touched on in the our first episode a few weeks ago. You can very, very rarely point at anything in a vacuum and say that causes this problem. You have to look at the overall context of everything.
0: Yeah, there are very few universals in nutrition and health. There are very few things you can state that are very simple and apply in every scenario. And it's interesting to try to think of what those things might be. But even things like trans fatty acids, you can't say trans fatty acids are bad because then you have to say, okay, from which source, what types of trans fatty acids? I mean, there's trans acid in, in dairy fats mm-hmm. and uh, certain dairy foods, full fat dairy foods show neutral to positive effects on, on a range of health outcomes in humans. So, and they've got trans fatty acids. So you have to distinguish between these industrially derived trans fatty acids versus the naturally occurring fatty acids and things like dairy foods. But going back to what are the universals we can point to that you can say in nutrition? There's, I don't know, there may be like three things you can say in a blanket way. One of the things that 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 you can say is consume. You have to consume enough protein. Don't don't go too low on protein. It's kind of hard to go too high with protein because that's sort of a self-limiting thing. Most people can't, can't even eat a gram of protein per pound of body weight a day if they tried. And a lot of people try and it's just tough to do because protein is satiating and it's kind of expensive and, and people don't necessarily want to go through paces to try to hit such high protein levels. So a universal thing, consume enough protein. Another universal thing is make sure the majority of your diet is from whole and minimally refined foods. Make sure only a a minority of your diet is from, in quotes, ultra-processed, hyper-palatable junk foods. There is an interesting argument surrounding ultra-processed foods because some of them are not unhealthy. And so a highly, in quotes, processed food would be protein powder and You know what, 95% of the research on protein powders shows stunningly beautiful effects for for humans. And so that would kind of be the exception. But then you look at the carbohydrate world. Well, yeah, unless you're a competitive athlete doing some intra-exercise carbohydrate intake, then you're much better off. The less refined your carbohydrate sources, the better and then another another universal for for nutrition make sure you cover your essential nutrient needs and the more you can do that with food the better but supplementation is just fine in in a number of cases if you're not meeting your essential nutrient needs with food and if there's not a whole lot more universal stuff ah properly fuel your athletic goals macronutritionally otherwise you're not going to hit those goals. So it's very tough to think of the universals in nutrition, and I may be missing one or two more, but yeah, that's about it. Everything else you have to ask, okay, what are we talking about here? What's the dose? What's the context? And then take it from there. Mm -hmm.
1: You mentioned earlier in the conversation about canola oil and extra virgin olive oil having a different effect on several health health outcomes and i can hear some people thinking oh well then i shouldn't have extra virgin olive oil anymore so
0: yeah. <laughs> yeah 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 that my take on that just because something shows a a in quotes a significantly better result then we're we're talking about statistical significance and there can be a difference between statistical mm-hmm. significance and practical significance or real world relevance. And so with the modestly more favorable effects of canola oil on blood lip profile versus extra virgin olive oil, it can also be argued that, well, there's other benefits of extra virgin olive oil that are related to their antioxidant polyphenol content. And so it's possible that extra virgin olive oil may have a more positive effect on mitigating oxidative stress if, when you compare it to canola oil. So they both have their strengths and limitations. Canola oil shows these slightly more favorable effects on blood lipids, probably because it it, it has a uh, may, maybe a more ideal, profile of fatty acid types that it's composed of. So canola oil is kind of special in that it does have a significantly larger proportion of omega-3 fatty acids than the other vegetable oils. And so that might be the source of uh, its benefit. But there are other aspects to extra virgin olive oil that also show benefits in different ways. So yeah, and and i I personally love extra virgin olive oil. I love the taste of it. I love the way it makes foods taste. And um, I just kind of like the, it, it's rooted, it's rooted in healthy populations, the use by healthy populations. And so it's got a great track record. A lot of people will harp about the way that canola oil and other, other oils like it are produced with they use solvents to extract the oil from kind of the seed crop. And people will point to things like hexane and and then they'll say, yeah, and then it's bleached and then it's deodorized. And well, okay, well, thank God and thank God for that because now it's consumable. But the use of hexane is an interesting thing because there are a lot of oils. And in some studies, olive oil (laughs) having higher hexane levels than um, canola oil. (laughs) So a lot of people don't know that. But the thing is, these hexane levels that are detected are well below the these sort of upper safe thresholds that are established by by the health agency so they're minuscule amounts and you would have to drink literally gallons of these oils yeah. a day to absorb the the hexane levels that are deemed even re- remotely threatening to human health context and dosage <laughs> yes
1: it's always context and dosage
0: <laughs> and that's hard to that's hard to accept for a lot of people when you say hey look it is about context and dosage, and there are shades of gray here. Our primate brain goes like this. Yeah. I don't like shades of gray. I want to know what's good. I want to know what's bad. And I want to know what to be highly fearful of. And I want to know what to just stock up on. So just tell me the, just be straight with me here. So, yeah, we don't like that. We don't like the shades of gray.
1: Yeah, that's hard and uncomfortable. <laughs>
0: And on the other on the other side of the coin, there will be people who say saturated fat is super bad, cholesterol is super bad. Avoid, avoid, avoid. Right? So there's guilty parties on the other side too. Some people will shame you for having any amount of of meat. And I'm not talking about like the vegan ethical the ethics. I'm, I'm talking about ah, oh, it's got saturated fat. We, the health agencies, tell us to eat our total saturated fat. Below 10%. And then here you are eating this, this ribeye. What are you trying? What are you suicidal? No, not really, man. I mean, we're- <laughs> yeah.
1: relax. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Try to enjoy my burger. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's right. <laughs> Bacon cheeseburger.
1: Yeah. Load it up, baby. Yeah. I mean, nutrition coaches here that black and white, all or nothing, good, bad is like what we do. what we try to get out of people's heads. And it's hard because as dysfunctional as it is, on some level, it's just easier to have these yes, eat this, no, don't eat that. Not to mention that a lot of people are coming to us having a history of that. So like, just tell me what to do. Just tell me what to do. And we're like, it doesn't work like that. We can strategize together and figure out in any given situation, what might be the most helpful path forward. But this black and white, follow a script, good, bad, it doesn't help anybody. You don't learn anything. You're fueling your own fear of whatever, ingredients, certain foods, not having a perfect plan, all of that.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and you know what? There is a small subset of the general, general population who really thrives on that, on the extremes, Mm-hmm. And coincidentally, they happen to be some of the loudest, squeakiest wheels out there uh, on both sides of, of the spectrum. We got the militant carnivores on one side and, and militant vegans on the other side. And yeah, they, they're definitely the the loudest.
1: Mm-hmm. Jumping like way back again, back into the conversation, we've talked about human research, human studies, and we also know that there's a lot of research done on mice I'm wondering if you could speak to that a little bit because I've had conversations even recently with people who are like, well, why bother with that if what we actually want is human research and what is the merit of the MICE studies?
0: Mm -hmm. Rodent studies are often called preclinical studies because they are a step in the process towards human studies. Feelings and, and ethics aside, Oftentimes animal studies are used to create hypothesis generating data. So before experiments are done with humans, the animals are are <laughs> they put on the they're put on the, the chopping block first in order to see whether there's going to be an effect or not. Okay, if there's an effect, then we move on to humans. This is the way that the drug industry works. So preclinical studies can go on for years before they find a drug that actually has the potential for effect in humans. So we're finding out what might have biological plausibility in humans. And so in essence, the rodent research is necessary to find biological plausibility while kind of sidestepping kind of the ethical pitfalls of of just using humans from the outset. So that's one, one way to look at rodent research. But either way, animal research is hypothesis generating until the findings are corroborated in humans. And there's other little things like the advantages of using rodents versus using humans in research. So the pros of rodent research is that it's usually more tightly controlled than human research because you can <laughs> control and 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 manipulate you
1: can lock a rodent in a room yeah
0: yeah but, i mean it sounds it sounds cruel but i mean you can impose whatever on, on earth uh, experimental treatments on on the rodents and you can keep a more watchful eye on them with humans humans gone human basically and unless you're surveilling them 24 hours then compliance is going to tend to be iffy. The pros is that rodent research is more tightly controlled than human research. The cons are that rodent physiology, in a lot of ways, and, and especially with macronutrient metabolism, is drastically different from human physiology. And this is why rodent data is always going to be looked at as hypothesis generating. Because, for example, there is a an impressive body of research done on rodents where you put them on zero carb diets or ketogenic diets and you'll see an explosion of visceral fat gain, a fatty fatty liver, you'll see ectopic fat gain, you'll see insulin resistance occur. And these sort of things that happen in rodents that just don't happen in humans when you throw humans on a zero carb Mm -hmm. or a ketogenic diet. And they try to find out, well, what's, what's possibly the mechanism of this stuff and the hypothesis or some, some people hypothesize anyway, that rodents have a different, what's called the liver X receptor. So if you do a PubMed search on rodents versus humans, liver X receptor, you'll see distinctly different metabolic outcomes as a result of stimulating or challenging the liver X receptor with various nutrients. And so it's very different in rodents and humans at a very fundamental level of macronutrient physiology. And so with the liver X receptor, having a very profound influence on carbohydrate and fat metabolism, and to a degree amino acid metabolism, then you're going to end up with very highly unreliable or V- with very low generalizability with rodent results to humans and uh, that's just the reality of the matter but there's enough potential similarities physiologically between rodents and humans that we can test drugs on on rodents and see if there's any promise there to test them out on humans
1: so essentially it's just a stepping stone to see if there's anything worth pursuing in whatever it is you're studying,
0: that's right. That's right. One out of every five thousand compounds tried out on rodents in the pharmaceutical industry will make it to pre uh, to will make it to human clinical trials, and then even less make make it to the market. I think that's that's roughly the statistic. If that's not exact, it's in that ballpark.
1: So interesting. Well, I know we're coming up on the end of our time. I feel like we could just keep going, but I know we have. (laughs) Yeah, we covered like two
0: things. (laughs) Yeah. You guys, you guys allow me to ramble.
1: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I'm always here for an Alan ramble. (laughs) Once again, tell everybody where they can find you, follow you, join your research review.
0: Yes. So, alanaragon.com is where you find all my stuff. And I. I have been doing a monthly research review since January of 2008, which is incredible to think for 16 years, I've been stressing myself out every month.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Intentionally.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Total masochist, apparently.
1: A good cortisol. <laughs> yeah.
0: Oh, man. Yeah. It, it lets me know I'm alive. So yeah, that's my baby is my monthly research review. It's, it's one of those things where I started off as 10 bucks a month. It's going to stay 10 bucks a month. I don't know, until my wife really kicks my ass and then maybe it'll go up. <laughs> and that's it. I, I wrote a book a little over a year ago, I think, a year ago, called Flexible Dieting. It's out there and um, it's gotten some great feedback. So I, I recommend checking that out. Nothing extremely important to announce. Just kind of keep a lookout for my speaking schedule, which will be listed on the website. And that's it. We just try to remain healthy. Get a little bit more jacked, a little, little, little bit little bit more functional,
1: and yeah.
0: we'll keep it going. Hashtag functional. Yeah, that's right. Functional training. Just stand on that BOSU ball <laughs> while doing your uh, squats. Perfect.
1: You're opening up a whole other can of worms. <laughs> 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 For real. <laughs> I almost... Snuck into the basketball court at my gym the other day because we had a we have a weightlifting class and some of the things they do in that class, I'm like, these people have no business doing it. And they were doing reverse barbell loaded lunges with their front foot on the bosu ball. There is no reason. Dude. These people, I love them. I'm sure they're lovely and sweet, but they're not coordinated enough yet to be doing barbell reverse lunges, let alone off a of bosu ball.
0: <laughs> oh boy. Oh boy. <sighs> Anyway, that is fun.
1: <laughs> lest I get on a soapbox, we can wrap this up. But thanks for joining us, everybody. Thank you again, Alan. I uh, appreciate you and all the stuff you put out into the world. We'll talk to you next time, folks. Same time, same place.
0: Brooke and Iris, you guys are both great. Brooke, I hope you feel better soon.
1: Oh, thank you, Alan. I really hope so. This too shall pass.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I, know, I know it will.
1: Thanks for listening to Tater Talks, Two Bitches Talk Fitness. If you enjoyed the show, let us know by writing a review, subscribing wherever you like to listen to podcasts. Find me, Iris, on Instagram at irisdeadlifts. And you can find me, Brooke, on Instagram at getyouabrook. We'll talk to you soon. Nice. Nice!